Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Lee, Andrew, and myself, Nabil, are your hosts for today. And today we are joined by Professor Mark Pallon, who is a professor of microbial genomics at the University of East Anglia and research group leader at the Quadrum Institute. Today, we're taking a trip down memory lane to reflect on some of the most exciting bioinformatics moments in Mark's very long and very illustrious career. So good day to you, Mark. Good to have you on the podcast yet again. Well, thank you for inviting me. And thank you for giving me a chance to go down memory lane and reminisce. Let's start. Let's see chronologically. Start off at the beginning and meander through time as we as we go along. So what was perhaps maybe the earliest, most exciting bioinformatics moment for you? It's kind of ironic. 1977, as you probably know, was a great year because that was the year which Sanger, Fred Sanger, actually described his method of sequencing, which took over the world. But at that time, protein sequencing was far more prevalent than DNA sequencing. And I applied to go to the University of Cambridge. And interestingly, when you look, I looked at my textbook that I used at school, biology textbook, you could look in the, in the index, and there was no mention of DNA at all. So we weren't taught about DNA and, and there was nothing, almost nothing known about DNA sequences at that time. But I had to do this Cambridge entrance exam, which was a special thing that the University of Cambridge did where they set you some questions. And if you pass that, then they let you in with very low grades in your normal school exams. And the, the irony was, I got this, one of the questions in that entrance exam was to give me a load of peptide sequences and say, assemble these into a larger protein sequence. And I did it, and I obviously did it well enough because I, I passed the entrance exam and got in, but it was a kind of slightly prophetic moment. Like, hang on, I was asked way back then in 1977 to assemble some protein sequences by hand in under exam conditions. So that was the, that, that's my first recollection of, of, of what we might now call bioinformatics at the time. It didn't have a name, I don't suppose. And then I got into Cambridge. I remember having conversations with some of fellow students about all the things that were going on. Richard Dawkins had just released the, the selfish gene. So kind of new ways of thinking about the genes being important in, 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 uh, and kind of the, the importance in evolution and all that was, was coming to the fore. But there was very little known at that stage about how hardly any genes were even known, let alone how much similarities there were between them and so forth. I remember in my final year at Cambridge, one of the lecturers coming in and saying, oh, we just discovered these strange things called introns. 
Um, and we don't know why they're there and what they do, but it's a kind of interesting new finding. And, oh, okay, that's kind of weird. But actually, I, I was training as a, as a medic, and so I then went off and, and completed my medical training. I did my three years clinical. I did my house jobs. But I was always interested in getting back into research. And in fact, when I finished my house jobs, I went and did six months working on using what were then very cutting edge techniques of polycolloid gel electrophoresis and Western blotting. And I did, I did some molecular biology, got paper out of that work. But I decided, no, I've got to keep going with the clinical stuff. And so I did that and I qualified as the medical microbiologist. And I got lucky because although I was on working in a, as a jobbing medical microbiologist, I applied for a job at, the, at Bart's Hospital in London, the medical school at Bart's Hospital. And I didn't think I'd have a chance of getting it. It was a clinical lecturer position because there was already a guy there who was like the internal candidate who was always doing his MD thesis with the professor and so forth. But I just turned up at the interview and, and I thought, well, it's interview practice. And I just wasn't at all nervous. And, and they talked about molecular biology. I said, oh, yeah, I kind of grew up with this. I can do this stuff and fine. And so I got offered the job. And that was a bit of a shock. Wow. Okay. But it turned out to be one of the best things that happened to me because it turned out that in that lab I was working in, it was headed up by a, a quite remarkable Iraqi British lady called Saad Tabakchali. She had managed to get onto the idea that molecular biology was the next happening thing. And she'd written a first grant that got in a guy called Brendan Wren, who might be known to some of you to work there. And he had then helped her write the second grant and the third grant and so forth. So she put up a small team, even though she was a jobbing medic herself and wasn't, didn't have a great grasp of molecular biology. But we had a small team of people there working at, was, at what was the time, the cutting edge. So Brendan Wren's job was to clone the toxin from C. difficile, which turned out to be far harder than anyone ever imagines. It, it, it is that, that he didn't quite get that fully done. But one of the other guys there, a guy called Chris Clayton, was uh, working on Helicobacter pylori, which had only been discovered a few years previously. And he'd been trying to clone the urease gene from Helicobacter pylori. And around that time, after I'd arrived there, I kind of managed to get in with the molecular biology guys. They kind of, I, I could just about talk their language and, and I kind of won their trust. And the other thing that was happening was that computers were coming in in a big way, personal computers. I mean, when I'd been doing my, as a medical student and just after that, I bought myself a BBC microcomputer and I learned a little bit of BBC basic. But then the Apple Mac came in and we bought, I managed to persuade them to buy an Apple Mac that we put into the lab. And I started mucking about with sequences and software. And I think most of them say, what, that guy, he's all right, but he's a bit odd, isn't he? He spends all that time mucking about with the bloody computer. What use is that? And then one day, Chris came to me and he said, he explained that he thought he might have cloned the urease genes from H. pylori, but it was all hanging by a bit of a thread. So what he'd done was uh, he'd got some rather crude antibody preparation that had been raised against a rather crude urease prep from H. pylori. And he'd made a, a lambda expression library from H. pylori. And he'd used his antibody to probe the, the plaques. And he said he got this very faint kind of glow around one of the plaques. But, but there, were no, there was no urease activity associated with the clone that he subcultured from it. And so he wasn't clear whether he was really traveling in the right direction or whether he had the right 
thin cloned or whether it was all just a red herring. And I said to him, well, have you got some sequences? He says, yeah, I've been sequencing it. And in those days, this shows my age, it, it, you use sequencing gels, you use radioactivity. It was a strange old business where people had to be very skilled in the art of pouring gels without bubbles and, and making sure that they ran them correctly. In fact, I remember one day they used to run the gels overnight. And one day uh, one of the guys in the lab came in and just caught a gel that had caught fire in the early morning before it actually went up in flames and set the whole lab on fire. So it was a strange old time in those days. But he, did, he had all these sequences and he said, I could have a look at them. And so what we, we did, and again, this is just laughable looking back at what we had to do, was he would sit there with his autoradiograph and he'd hold it up against the light and I would have the computer and then he would call out the bases as he read them from his autoradiograph. And in that way, we, we digitized his autorads and got these sequences from them. And I, I just let, managed to lay my hands on a program for the Apple Mac. I think it was called Fast A. Is it the Fast A or Fast P? It was, I know it's also the name of a format, but it was the name of a program at the time as well. And there was this library called the PIR library, which is a protein database library. And I said to him, well, I can search this library, but you know, are there any other urease sequences known? And he said, well, there is this plant, this jack bean urease. I said, oh, that's a bit of a bit of a leap, isn't it, to think that we might find any similarity between a bacterial urease and a, and a plant uh, urease. And at that time, you know, we, we had so few sequences that comparisons across domains was, wasn't done very much anyway. But I said, well, we'll have a go. And I remember the day, it was the 15th of September, 1989, when I sat down uh, in front of the Mac and took his sequences and ran this translated, uh, well, effectively a translated blast search, a translated homology search to see whether his sequences encoded anything that looked like the urease from the, from the jack bean. And it was one of those things where you just knocked off the chair because there was around 50% amino acid identity coming up from the various sequences. And interestingly, it, it was on one strand, but it was waving, wavering from one reading frame to another. So you get a great block of sequences from one reading frame, and then just nothing, and then another reading frame would light up. And so I went back to him uh, and I said, there is no question, you have cloned H. pylori urease genes. And not only that, but they show this remarkable sequence homology to the, the plant urease. Uh, and this kind of similarity between a bacterial protein and a plant protein, I think is unprecedented. And so that, that was one of my moments where I, there's a poem by Keats, which goes on, then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes, he stared at the Pacific and with all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise silent upon a peak in Darien and to me that's one of those moments where you're you're on that peak in Darien looking out something completely new and it was just amazing to see this but what I said well actually you've you've got the these sequences but there must be mistakes because they're coming in and out of frame let's go back and look at the auto rads and see if we can correct this and so we went back through each of the bits where it went out of frame and and he said I said, oh, you've got six A's here. He said, oh, no, there's only five. 
Oh, and then the next bit, you know, oh, you've got four G's here. Oh, it's five. And we managed to correct it. So we got everything in frame. And in fact, that, that still stands true apart from there was one final frame shift at the end. I think there was, I don't know, five amino acids we missed that were out of frame at the end that we, we didn't sort out by this process. So we, we, we immediately wrote that up. We tried to get into nature, but the editor at Nature didn't like it or didn't think it was that exciting or whatever. But it did get published in nucleic acid research. And, and that was, for me, the beginning of the voyage because it meant I convinced myself and my colleagues that, that mucking about with sequences and playing around on your computer actually could make a decisive, have a decisive influence on the outcome of research and, and actually inform the way forward for lab-based research. So it wasn't just some kind of weird kind of activity that you, you did in a corner when you couldn't be bothered to do anything useful. So that, that was a great step forward. And, and within the same context, we found other things as well. Yeah, so yeah, there were several other efforts that came out of our work at the time that were similar. We found a, a, a group two intron that included a reverse transcriptase in a gram positive. That was the first in a gram positive. It wasn't quite the first in the bacterium. We also found a, a cluster of genes in Clostridium difficile, which had, were homologues of the set of genes in Clostridium acetobutylicum that were responsible for butanol fermentation. And I got very excited about that because I said, well, these are the genes that gave rise to the state of Israel because a bit of a, of a kind of night's move thinking there, but it turned out that uh, Chaim Weizmann, uh, who made the case to the British government for the support to support Israel with the so-called Balfour Declaration, um, made his reputation by being able to, to produce butanol by fermentation during the First World War. And that made a, a decisive contribution to the First World War, the British efforts in the First World War. And, and, and it was using this particular genetic pathway in Clostridium acetobutylicum that he'd done that. So that was an example where I got perhaps more excited than I should have done about what we found, but we did publish a paper on that. So that was a that was a very exciting time back then. You know that that, that little phrase, "We band of brothers, we happy few," comes springs to mind as well because it was a great time to be doing science. It's interesting as you as you go through it, some of the problems that you were talking about are some of the same ones I still have to feel today, where someone will come to me with some sequence they've generated in the lab, some some mutant they've made under some condition, and then asking whether what other organisms have something similar. And uh, interesting, you had to deal with homopolymer errors probably a few decades before people had to deal with it with pyrosequencing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So that's always been the bane of any bioinformatician's existence as homopolymer polymeric tracks. Yeah. So, so many of these problems go back a long time. In some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. In that these things have the same problems have cropped up repeatedly. I did have a question about how you actually did the alignments, considering um, like BLAST was published in 1990. It wasn't. So let me correct myself there. It wasn't BLAST. It was a forerunner of BLAST. I think it was called Fast A, the program back at the time. And, and it allowed you to just sequence to uh, do homology searches against Fast A formatted sequences. I, I suspect that was a simpler, just local yeah, alignment. Simpler, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it didn't. It wasn't as elegant and as quick and as efficient, but the database probably only had like a thousand sequences in it at the time. So it, it didn't have to be ma massively elegant and efficient. But yeah, BLAST, as you say, was a few years later, Altschul et al., it's one of the most highly cited papers. 
And later in my career, I I almost became a blast symbiont or a side blast symbiont, if you like, in that I spent so much time, you know, fused to, to, to a side blast terminal. But we can go on to that in a moment. <laughs> you said that in 1977, you were just like handed sequences and you had to assemble them by hand. Did did you have anything more on that? This is a bioinformatics podcast, so I wanted to get like a little bit into that. Did you have like a way that you did it? I wouldn't say an algorithm because you're obviously doing it by hand, but but how did you do it back then? Well, it's like one of those things where you look back and think, well, I did that, but how did I do that? How did I know how <laughs> to do that? I must have must have had an aptitude for these things because it seemed fairly straightforward to me that you just lined them up and look for the overlaps and where they overlap, you join them together until you've got the whole thing. The good thing about protein sequences is, of course, that they're all effectively in one strand, if you like. Whereas if you're doing DNA sequences, you have to uh, reverse complement and it gets more complicated. But yeah, it, it was one of those, it was just like doing a jigsaw, but, but doing it with sequences instead. And I guess I had some kind of affinity for that, for, for, you, for, for language, I suppose. I, I'd done Latin and um French at school I taught myself the language Esperanto and so sort of playing around with with strings of letters was something that wasn't that unusual to me I mean if you if you've if anyone's ever done Latin where you have to parse a, a Latin unseen you know it's a similar kind of process of working out what the parts are and how they fit together it's, it's not that different Yes, we shouldn't forget that most of our most fundamental algorithms in bioinformatics are essentially derived from text searching and linguistics Indeed. Yeah. I mean, there are many parallels mm. and jumping forward quite a, a long way. I did actually persuade one of my colleagues to, to use similar approaches to the origin of species where they I said, treat it like a series of genomes and look for uh, among all the different additions, look for the, the additions, the deletions and the edits. And, and they came up with an online variorum of the origin of species by thinking like a, a bioinformatician. And I did later in my career, I, I, I rubbed shoulders with a theologian who was using these kind of approaches to analyze gospel manuscripts, uh, the gospel of Luke, looking at, you know, how do you align the text? How do you look for changes? How do you identify, work out whether it's an insertion in one or a deletion in the other, all those kind of issues. And yeah, it's, it, there are many parallels between these ways of thinking in in bioinformatics and in the digital humanities and elsewhere. I had one more question from, from before also. You said that your, your textbook, what, back when you started, there was like no mention of DNA at all. I thought that was really startling. So back then, I mean, did you ever get to rub shoulders also with, with Franklin, Roslyn or Crick or anybody? Not back then, no. <laughs> no, I mean, Roslyn had been dead for some time before I was born. I think she died in 58, I think, didn't she? around then 57 58 i knew of their work i mean their work was mentioned uh, and the fact that it just wasn't in the in, in that particular textbook didn't mean we didn't learn about it at school i did learn about it at school and i and and crick and watson's achievement you know was something that british people at the time had this warm glow of satisfaction that the these two guys working in, in Cambridge had, had solved it. And I did read the double helix as well jim watson's uh, memoir of the time which is i think probably not very politically correct these days but it's an entertaining read if you if you allow for that i met both of them later in life i met francis crick when he he came to give a talk in london i briefly met, uh, spoke to him i was going to ask for his autograph but uh, i didn't quite get, get up the courage but i did speak to him briefly 
and Jim Watson, the MRC got him to come along, I think, in Cheltenham, was it the 100th anniversary of the MRC? They had him talking there. And that was a very strange business because he had just been saying all those stupid things that got him sacked from all those advisory boards about black people not being the same as white people and whatever. And the MRC had been very brave, actually, giving him a platform. And it, one felt the whole time he was talking, it was like treading on egg, eggshells because he... It, it, but I didn't speak to him, but I took a photograph of him with my daughter. And, uh, so she's got that in her archive somewhere. She wanted to meet him because she'd heard of him. Yeah, so how did you get into, I suppose, developing bigger grants and, you know, taking your own research forward in bioinformatics? So what happened after, when I was at BART, uh, I was doing this, uh, I was making the contribution to the research. The other thing that had come in at that time was the polymerase chain reaction, the PCR, and we, we spent a lot of time playing around with PCR. In fact, one of those moments where I had a moment of inspiration, which then fizzled out and I look back and think that was a missed opportunity. I remember in the tea room saying to someone that the way in which we type bacteria at the moment is like we cut them with these restriction enzymes and we get all these bands. I wonder if we could do something similar with PCR. If we could make PCR primers that had the restriction enzyme sites at the ends of the primers, maybe we could replicate those bands. And they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, but actually, we don't need to do that. We could just put any old sequence in. So the, the, the primers could be completely arbitrary because as long as we take the temperature down for the annealing low enough, something's going to get amplified. And so why don't we try that? Why don't we just do a, a PCR with a very, very low annealing temperature on some bacteria with any old primer and see what happens? And we did it. And it did work. You took different strains of E. coli and you could see different banding patterns. I said, oh, we've invented a new typing method. And we started to write it up and we tried to get it published in, in nucleic acid research. And they said, oh, this is a bit niche. It's only for bacteria. We're not really interested. And then at the time, I wasn't that skilled in the lab. So, so my, my colleague was doing a work I called Ian Lamb. He continued. And then he came back and said, look, I, I'm a bit worried because I'm not getting the reproducible profiles. So when I've run the experiment the second time, I'm getting a few extra bands. And he said, I, I don't think we should press on with this. And so I said, well, you're more of an expert than me. We put it to one side. And then about 18 months later, a paper was published in NAR on, on exactly the same technique. They'd applied it to both plants and bacteria. And so I keep a, a gel from those experiments, a picture of a gel from those experiments on the wall in my office to remind myself not to let opportunities pass you by. And looking back, probably what had happened uh, is that, because it's now called RAPD, uh, that approach, what had happened is that from one round to the next, some of the, the, the um, amplicons had hung around and were, there was contamination of subsequent runs and that's why they weren't giving consistent results. So if you ran the, if you ran the same experiment under perfect conditions, you would get the same results probably. But it, it, and, and as I say, later on, people did adopt this RAPD approach and it became very highly used. So it's one of those missed opportunities. But anyway, getting back to, to Andrew's point. So I, I did an MD thesis at the time, which is a, a kind of thesis that, that medics do in the UK. And that was looking at using the PCR to detect the diphtheria toxin gene. And I, I realised that there was a kind of gap in the repertoire that if we wanted to determine whether a strain of coronibacterium diphtheriae was toxigenic or not, the conventional approaches were very laborious and, and, and required very 
complex agents uh, that were uh, not necessarily reproducible, anti-serum and such. And so I said, well, we could just do it by PCR. And I did manage to get it to work. I got the MD. I then uh, got into a senior lecturer position where I became an honorary consultant. And I thought, well, I can, make, I can be a clinical academic. I kind of got some credentials here. But then people said, well, you know, medics in the lab, Basically, there was this idea that all medics are jokers in the lab. And the MD thesis was a kind of noddy PhD for medics. Uh, it became a debased coinage in a sense. People said, if you want to be co-equal with uh, your non-medical colleagues, you have to do a PhD. And around the same time, uh, Gordon Dugan, who a few times through Brendan Wren, had come up with the same idea. He basically said, oh, yeah, medical microbiology in the UK as a profession is just rubbish. And I was like... Just mm, my whole profession, that's a bit harsh, but yeah, you got a point. And he, so he managed to persuade the Wellcome Trust to launch a scheme to allow medics to go and do a PhD, medical microbiologists to do a PhD. And I said, oh, how do I get onto this scheme? Uh, where, where would I go? Could I do it in Bath? He said, no, if you stay where you are, that's not how fellowships work. I said, you've got to go somewhere else. I said, well, where shall I go? He said, well, I'll take you on. And so uh, I went and did a, a three-year PhD with Gordon Dugan. It was an interesting experience because I went from being a self-important or at least an, imp an important person or self-important person. I was a consultant, you know, I was the youngest consultant in my year at medical school. And I, like a lab idiot, once I started the PhD, you know, that they were just joking, oh, this guy, his gels are rubbish and uh, he, he can't make mutants and all this sort of stuff. But it was three years of hard graft, and I actually, in that time, I did change completely into becoming a, a jobbing molecular biologist. And I also extended my bioinformatics skills. I, started, I continued to play around with computers. And interestingly, at that time, the internet had, had, had fully arrived. So the internet had been a kind of a niche thing for many years. But with the arrival of, of the World Wide Web and increasing use of email, it was coming into public consciousness. And I started mucking around on, on the internet. I built my own web pages and I actually wrote a series of articles. I persuaded the British Medical Journal to allow me to write a series of articles introducing the medical profession to the internet. And so I wrote these, these three articles about the internet. My daughter read them recently and she just laughed at me. She said, oh, well, I suppose at the time this was all very pioneering, but some of the things you say, it says here, Getting email is so much more fun than getting snail mail because there's no such thing as junk email. And that's what we believed at the time. We believed we were going into the promised land, that everything would be wonderful. And the internet was only a force for good. Of course, it's been very much a double-edged sword since then. But anyway, as a result of that, I got the PhD. And then I was in the place to start writing grant proposals. I was kind of tooled up. And I wrote, I think I wrote eight proposals. I wrote four proposals to the Wellcome Trust, none of which got funded. And I wrote three to the BBSLC, a fourth of the BBSLC, three of which did get funded. So I, I kind of started off with three project grants. And that was the launch of, of my career in, in, in one sense, or relaunch, if you like. All right. So let's take some questions. I, I, I can't help myself. Do you remember when your opinion changed about spam? No, I think uh, that's more like the frog being boiled by the temperature going up slowly, isn't it? <laughs> uh, the amount of spam slowly increased over the years until now we have spam filters and all that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, I'm just looking at Google Scholar, and you've hundreds of citations for these guide to the internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I I look back and think, well, I yeah, I did make a make a difference. The other thing I did while I was doing the PhD was obviously I went on University Challenge and captained a team on the University Challenge, which is a a UK version of College Bowl for those in America. Yeah, we won that, so that was that was a bit of fun as well along the side. The other thing that happened, and this is. I think the theme of what I'm saying to you is that nobody remembers all those days in the office is the sort of thing that we say, or nobody remembers all those days in the lab, apart from the fact that there are a few days that you do remember. And there was one particular moment I remember when I was in Duke's lab, where a guy called Duncan Maskell, who is uh, friends with Ian Charles, our director, he's now uh, running the University of Melbourne in the US, but he was on a secondment in Duke's lab, but he'd been to a, a conference in America and he returned to this conference and we all saw him in the lab. We all stood around him with bated breath, listening to what he was saying. He said, oh, he just met this guy called Craig Venter and, and this other guy, Ham Smith. And they had just sequenced a bacterial genome and, and they, they'd done one, but then they'd done Haemophilus influenzae. But just to show they weren't a one trick pony, they'd then done a, a second one, a mycoplasma genome as well. And, and it was one of those moments where, wow, they've actually done it. And it was one of those things where Craig Venter, you know, had a, a mixed reputation in the field, I guess, slightly a bit of a troublemaker, but he certainly stirred the pot and you have to hand it to him. What was going on at the time was that there were efforts going on at the Sanger and people were talking about, oh, yes, we can sequence bacterial genomes. But it was going through this very laborious process of making this top-down approach where they made a a very large library and then they subcultured bits from the large library and then and then subcultured bits and then sequenced all that and put it all together in this very slow and laborious you had to have a, a total genome map before you could even start doing sequencing and Craig Venter and Ham Smith just upturned the upper cart because they just said no you just sequence all this stuff uh, in lots and lots of small fragments and you let the bioinformatics do the heavy lifting of assembling them all. And that was one of those moments again where you go, wow, okay, that's incredible. The uh, you said shotgun approach. Yeah, the shotgun approach. So using a shotgun approach rather than, than a top-down kind of mapping approach. But that was the, a breakthrough. Yeah, not only we still use that nomenclature even though no one does back clonings anymore. Well, yeah. not yeah. for genomes in that way. No, no, exactly. So that, that was very exciting. And I, I, I got interested in that area. And the Sanger very quickly decided that they were going to do the same thing. So they were at the time sequencing uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis using the top-down approach. And they did complete that genome. But the, the, the next one they did was Campylobacter jejuni, And I got involved in that project. Uh, so... What happened next was one of those uh, strange serendipitous moments where something unexpected happened. So because I'd been working with the British Medical Journal on writing those articles and they'd been well received, what um, followed was that they asked me to do a regular column in the British Medical Journal uh, on the internet. It was called Netlines. And I did that for a few months. So there's, there's one question that I don't know if I'll ever get the answer to. But you mm -hmm. mentioned that they said that you give all the data to the bioinformaticians and they can sort it all out. And the question that I'll never get the answer to, I think, is when was bioinformatics the term actually used first? And I've heard okay. before, like 
maybe 1997 when it, when it, the journal like renamed itself to bioinformatics, but I don't really know. Yeah. So the so uh, while I was doing the PhD with Gordon Dugan, I remember Gordon Dugan using the term bioinformatics and said, "Oh, you're interested in bioinformatics. This is a this is a, a growth area." And that was the first time I'd heard the the name bioinformatics, the term bioinformatics, and that was in the mid 90s, 95, 96. I'd been calling it sequence analysis up till then, but he used the term bioinformatics, and that's when the the term came into my consciousness, and it obviously became much more widely used as the, as the field grew. Now, what happened next was one of those strange moments of serendipity where I'd written those articles to the BMJ, the British Medical Journal. I did this regular column called Netlines, discussing innovations in the use of the internet in medicine, new websites and interesting new developments. And after I'd been doing that for a few months, they said, oh, we have this student British Medical Journal as well, and maybe you could do a a column for that. And I said, yeah, right. They said, the thing is, though, there's this other guy that's also wants to do that. And would you be happy to work with them? And I said, I suppose so. I mean, I don't need to have this other guy. I could do it myself. But and who is it? And they said, oh, there's a guy called Nick Lohman and you might want to meet him. So I had a chat with him and I said it turned out he was at school. He was in his final year at school. He was applying to to get into medical school and he had from a very young age he taught himself to program and so we started writing uh, this column in a student bmj together which i think we called net files with a ph and i said to him why don't we run a little workshop to introduce people to the internet for medics to show them how to use the internet how to use the web how to send emails and do stuff and he said yeah all right and so we got together and, and it was one of those experiences where you forget how much you've already picked up because we had people turning up to that workshop who didn't know how to use a mouse a computer mouse you know they were just looking at it well, what's this and how does it work and and all that and so we ran that and it was a qualified success i should I, point out that we have had workshops recently where you've kind of still run into the same yeah, exactly. blocks. it's the same it's the same issues that recur year on year that you you think you're running a, a workshop with a, a basic expectation of what people know and they and if they fail you they can be less uh, skilled than you could ever imagine anyway as a result of that i thought well nick you're in this kind of uh, programming space and i was still working with sarah tabachley at the time who was uh, my mentor and i said look there's this bright guy here what he's going to do a gap here Maybe we could employ him in that gap year to do some kind of programming for us. And she said, yeah, all right. So I, uh, I took Nick on. And around the same time, the Sanger had started sequencing compiler back to Jujanai. And the Sanger had said what they were going to do was sequence the whole genome. And only when they finished it and got all of the reads that they needed, would they then assemble it. And then once they'd assembled it, then they would annotate it one gene at a time And then when they got to the end of that process, they would start creating vignettes, trying to draw out any kind of biological lessons from the genome. And through Brendan Wren, I was involved with the Campylobacter research community. And uh, he said, well, the research community want to get access to this data straight away. And they don't want to wait for 18 months or two years or however long it's going to take for for the whole thing to be finished. Around the same time, there had been this thing called the Bermuda Records, where it, 
publicly funded or any sequencing project funded by public funds or charity funds, there was an obligation to release the data straight away. So the Sangle were releasing all their shotgun data, but they just weren't analyzing it. And so what I said to Nick Langman says, what we need to do is basically as assemble that, or take those reads and then blast them against the E. coli genome, which is, was in a fairly good state, against the proteins in the E. coli genome, and then see if we can assemble them into the various protein metabolic pathways so people can see Krebs cycle or glycolysis or whatever and see that those things are present in the genome and they can do their own searches against the proteins as we go along. So if you could make a kind of genome browser and he said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can, I can, I can make a database, a relational database, and then I can build a web front end. So I said, can you go away and do that? We were going to employ him for the best part of a year. I thought it might take him three months or six months. I think it took him about three days to do it. And it was just amazing. And it was at that stage, and I had started thinking, well, maybe I should become a bioinformatician. I'd spoken to Bart Burrell, who was one of Sanger's kind of disciples at the Sanger, who was involved in running this genome sequencing. He said, oh, if you're interested in this, you should learn Perl. And I'd started trying to learn a bit of Perl, and I was like, okay. But then when I saw Nick Lohman at the age of 18 come along and do this work in three days, I take would have taken three months, I thought. I just thought, I can't compete with youth. You know, <laughs> I'll just let him do it. What happened then was that we, we managed to do all these analyses. People were very grateful. I did some of my own analyses on stuff in the, in the genome. And I got managed to get myself onto the genome paper, which appeared in Nature. I'm looking at your Nature paper with Campylobacter. And so... That figure one, I guess I'll put that in the show notes later for everyone to hear. That figure one, it looks like a modern figure. So the, the, the Sanger had their own bioinformaticians and the Sanger did a perfectly good job of analyzing the genome. It's just that they had this particular way of working, which was that we don't start one stage until the previous stage is completed. So we're not going to start analyzing this data and interrogating it and and basically iteratively looking at the biological significance of it and refining hypotheses and whatever, until we get to the end of not just the shotgun, not just the finishing, but the end of the annotation process. And the thing that the, back in those days, the annotation was done manually. So an individual looked every protein coding gene in the genome, looked at the homology search results for that protein coding gene, made an annotation, made a call to say, this is an ortholog of that, it can be called that, or this is distantly related to something we, we can say it's a sugar transport protein, but we can't say what, you know, they, they made all those kind of calls manually. There, there was none of this business of, of, of just running it through a pipeline in five minutes. It, it took them months and months to actually do those annotations. And so I, I got in because we could actually help people make sense of the data in advance and so some of the things that we that got written up in the nature paper people had been working on them even in advance of the sanger saying it's now finished and we're ready to do the next part they'd already been let we've been laying the kind of groundwork for it then on that cliffhanger i want to thank our guest mark professor mark Prallen, for joining us today we've been talking about some of the bioinformatics highlights from his career gleaning some advice and thoughts for the rest of us We've gone from the start of his career to the dawn of the of the millennium with exciting events like next generation sequencing on the horizon. So we're going to cut back to that in the next exciting episode of the Microbinfi podcast. See you then. Mm -hmm.
Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.